Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 13, which is the last book of the book series. It's titled Generosity. We're in chapters 11 through chapters 20. And we're going to be going through these chapters one by one today in the class where a student will read the chapter. I will share teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you might have. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class and let you know that as you have questions in the class, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. The way that we start our class is with a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind a bit for the class. And this will help you to kind of clear things out in the mind, help you retain the teachings for a bit longer. Normally, I just do a very light guidance here, just kind of like a short little 10 minute meditation just to help you guys. If you're meditating regularly, which most students are who join this program, you're meditating two or three times a day for maybe upwards of 30 minutes or more. But this little meditation here is you know, just before you read something, just before a class or as you're entering into a class, it's kind of nice to do a little bit of meditation. So if you'd like to join, I'd like to invite you and welcome you to join for the meditation. So just go ahead and take a position. And then after we do meditation, I will start the class with the, the guidance and the teachings. With your body in the meditation position of your choice, you'd like to just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'll start with some chants and you guys are welcome to join along in these if you like. And then I'll come back with some brief guidance. Sapakawato 
through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath. Breathing in and out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily match up to the guidance that I provide and that's okay because I'm just here for guidance. This is your practice. So wherever you get to the next inhale, just breathe in naturally through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then when you're ready, exhale out through the nose, experiencing the full natural exhale. Breathing in, in, out. With the breath well established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out. There's no need to label the thought, observe the thought, judge it, or even try to analyze it and try to figure out where it's coming from. Instead, just wherever you observe the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath. Breathing in 
out.
to switch over here to studying the teachings from this book, volume 13, The Words of the Buddha. We're in chapters 11 through 20 today. And if you've read these before class, that's wonderful because you might have certain things that you've thought about, certain reflections that you've had along the way that will actually help you to gain more out of today's class. But if you haven't, that's okay because we're going to be reading them in class and you can study right along with everyone else. So I'll just go ahead and turn things over to all of you and specifically our moderators so that we can go ahead and be guided through the class and then I'll just come in to provide teachings and answer any questions that you guys might have. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, let's go to Tonka first to read chapter 11, please. Thank you, Miranda. Four means of sustaining favorable relationship. Monks, there are these four means of sustaining a favorable relationship. What for? Giving endearing speech, beneficent conduct, and equality. 
These are the four means of sustaining a favorable relationship. Giving endearing speech, beneficent conduct and equality under diverse worldly conditions as is suitable to fit each case. These means of sustaining a favorable relationship are like the linchpin on a rolling chariot. If there were no such means of sustaining a favorable relationship, neither mother nor father would be able to obtain admiration and respect from their children. But since there exist these means of sustaining a favorable relationship, wise people respect them, thus they attain to greatness and, uh, and are highly praised. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is giving you the understanding of the natural law of gamma as it relates to developing wholesome relationships and healthy relationships. He's giving you these four things that are vitally important in a relationship in order to maintain the health of that relationship. Here he talks about giving, which is essentially practicing generosity sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources. This is going to help you to cultivate friends as you're in relationships with whether it's a friend friend or whether it's your parents or your siblings or coworkers or other people like this, just any relationship that you're in, as you practice generosity and being willing to give and share more than is strictly required, this is going to actually help you to cultivate healthy relationships. Then he talks about endearing speech. This is like kind of, I have it down here for you guys. This is inspiring, loving, and affectionate communication. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, all there was was actually speech. But now we have speech, we have uh, text messages, we have Facebook posts, social media posts, we have emails, different ways of communicating. So endearing communication would be inspiring, loving, and affectionate. Where if we're diminishing, if we're degrading, if we're harsh, aggressive, bitter, hostile in our speech, not practicing right speech, then this is going to cause difficulties in our relationships. Likewise, if we practice beneficent conduct, which is wholesome moral conduct, which the Buddha talks about as part of the Eightfold Path, he's sharing with you what wholesome moral conduct is as part of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And if you're practicing that in your relationship where you're not causing harm through your speech and your actions towards the people that you have in various relationships, then because you're not causing harm, the people will be comfortable to be around you. Whereas if you were stealing or having sexual misconduct or you were hitting people and you were haphazardly going through life in that way, then it's going to put strain on your relationships. And then this last one that the Buddha shares, which is so wonderful for people to see, which is equality. Because oftentimes traditions very far in the past, people think that, you know, that teachers are degrading women, for example, or people who prefer same gender relationships and kind of pushing people down. But here you can see the Buddha didn't do that. Instead, he taught that in our relationships that we should have equality where everybody's equal and we view each other as equal. And if we try to put ourselves above or below people with conceit, with arrogance, by measuring and comparing ourselves to others, this is going to put a strain on the relationship. But by viewing everyone as being equal, 
no matter whether they're your parents or your brothers and sisters or whoever it is, that you understand, yes, I need to provide politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect in these relationships, but I should view everybody as equal because if I put myself above people, I'm going to have a tendency to talk down on them and people aren't going to like this. Where if you put yourself below people, your mind's going to be uncalm and shaken up and not able to have a healthy, sustaining relationship. So by practicing generosity, enduring speech, beneficent conduct, and equality, then you can cultivate healthy relationships in all parts of your life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we'll go on to chapter 12. Uh, Three things prescribed by the wives. Monks, there are these three things prescribed by the wives prescribed by wholesome people, but three. One, giving is prescribed by the wise, prescribed by wholesome people. Two, the going forth is prescribed by the wise, prescribed by wholesome people. Three, attending upon one's mother and father is prescribed by the wise, prescribed by wholesome people. These three things are prescribed by the wise, prescribed by wholesome people. Wholesome people prescribe giving, harmlessness, mental discipline and mental restraint, service to one's mother and father, and to the peaceful practitioners of the spiritual life. These are the deeds of the good which the wise person should pursue. The noble one possessed of vision goes to a heavenly world. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about these three things that are very wise to practice as part of your life. Here he's talking about practicing generosity. He's saying this is a very wise thing to do. Well, we know that generosity eliminates craving, desire, attachment, and there's other benefits that the Buddha talks about here in all these different discourses that we're sharing in part of this book. But the primary purpose is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but then there's all these other benefits that are part of one practicing generosity. Not that you're expecting those things, but those things will occur. So the Buddha is suggesting and guiding individuals to practice generosity. Here, He's talking about going forth. What this means is this is going into homelessness in order to ordain as a practitioner, as an ordained practitioner. Of course, not everybody's going to ordain, but he's just saying that, hey, this is a wise thing to do. And the reason why is because ordaining, the mind is more able to get to enlightenment in that life. It's more conducive for somebody to actually get to enlightenment by being in this womb of the ordained lifestyle because you're not pursuing a career you're not maintaining countless relationships you're not doing a whole lot of things that you need to do in a household life that the mind has the ability to hold on to and get attached to a household practitioner can absolutely get to enlightenment and there's a lot of wisdom that you need to cultivate a lot of practice to be able to get to enlightenment but it's absolutely possible and it's something that a lot of people in this community are working towards But the Buddha here, he also talks in this teaching here about going forth, and he talks in other teachings where he says household life, he calls it dusty, where it's very challenging essentially to get to enlightenment, but it's absolutely possible. And I would say it's actually more possible now than during the lifetime of the Buddha. During the lifetime of the Buddha, it's very understandable why he said it's you know challenging to get to enlightenment as a household practitioner because they were so busy with household tasks. I mean, just think about having water in your home, you know, probably two or three times a week 
there were several hours involved of carrying containers, scooping up the water, bringing it to the home, dumping it out, going to the water source, scooping up the water, bringing it home, cultivating food and growing food and harvesting food and preparing food, you know, just making clothes and fabrics and things that were needed to sustain life. There was a lot of things that were needed to be done by household practitioners just to sustain their life. Where nowadays, 2,500 years later, we've really mastered this, that we have kind of allowed different industries and different groups of people to focus on harvesting food. There's services like providing water and electricity and internet service and things like this, that we don't have to do any of those things. We can just walk over to a spigot and turn on the faucet and boom, we've got water instantly in a lot of houses throughout the world. This didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. Even indoor plumbing is completely new from the lifetime of the Buddha. This just didn't exist. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he did encourage people to ordain, but also he understood that household practitioners are going to practice his teachings and get to enlightenment that way as well. But nowadays, there's so much more ability for a household practitioner to get to enlightenment than existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. And then parents in the Buddhist teachings are considered to be one's original teachers. The Buddha teaches to have respect and gratitude for all teachers because someone who's a teacher is sharing wisdom and wisdom is what leads to liberation. It leads to enlightenment, but it also leads to a better living environment. If people are cultivating wisdom about various trades and various occupations, this is going to create a more successful society where people have skills and abilities to do things like construction and things like this. There's all different kinds of trades that we have nowadays that people are cultivating wisdom about. But the Buddha considers your mother and your father as your original teachers, because when you came out from the womb, you were highly dependent on everybody around you. If it wasn't for the people around you, we wouldn't have sustained our life and we wouldn't have lived. They gave us food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care. They attended to us. And then eventually as we aged, we got to be able to do those things for ourselves more and more readily. But in our early years of life, we weren't able to do that. Not only were our parents providing us or our caregivers, whoever those people might be, providing us the basic necessities to live. But this is where we learned speech. This is where we learned how to walk. This is where we learned so many basic skills, even just brushing our teeth and putting on clothes and all these things that we've learned from our parents. So there's this respect that is afforded within the Buddhist teachings towards one's parents for helping you to sustain your life and getting to this point where now you can sustain your life. Because a human birth is so ideal, Coming into the human realm, you now have the ability to actually get to enlightenment. And this is the the people who actually helped you to do that as mother and father coming together. The baby's born and now they take care of us until we get to the point where we're actually able to sustain our own life. And now you have the ability through being able to read, write, talk, things like this, that you can now potentially study and get deep into these teachings to liberate the mind and escape all this discontentedness and escape the cycle of rebirth as well. So the human birth is so ideal and our parents and caregivers, whoever those people might have been, provided significant benefit to us early in life to get us to the point where we can sustain our life. So there's this gratitude that is provided to one's parents as our original teachers. 
And then the Buddha talks here about giving, harmlessness, having mental discipline and mental restraint where you can control the mind, having service to one's mother and father, to be peaceful practitioners of the spiritual life. This is what he's essentially prescribing as what it would be wise for us to practice on a regular basis, practicing generosity, practicing harmlessness through our moral conduct, ensuring that we're not harming others, practicing mental discipline, we're able to control the mind and restrain the mind, not just allowing craving to persist and motivate our conduct and the way that we interact in the world where we're just out for our own selfish desires, where we're serving our parents and ensuring that they're taken care of. This is how a practitioner can get to peacefulness in their spiritual life, among all the other teachings that the Buddha shares. And then this last part, he talks about there are the deeds of the good which the wise person should pursue, or these are the deeds, meaning the ones that he talked about previously in the previous paragraph. The noble one, which is his very close students, possessed of vision, go to a heavenly world. When he talks about vision, and he talks about this at different times in his discourses, what he's talking about is being able to see the path to enlightenment clearly being able to understand the natural laws of existence. Because when we're off the path or we're just starting the path, we have a lot of ignorance or unknowing of true reality. There's confusion, there's misunderstanding. We don't see clearly what are the natural laws of existence. We don't understand craving, anger, and ignorance. We don't understand the universal truth of impermanence, discontentedness, non-self. We don't understand the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the natural law of gamma, and so many other things. So as you develop your practice more and more, you're getting this vision where you can see clearly exactly why things are happening in the world the way they are. This is one of the reasons why the mind becomes more and more peaceful as you get to enlightenment. One of the reasons why the mind experiences discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others is because of this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. The mind doesn't understand the natural laws of existence and how things work and how things function in the world. And it's a real struggle and very difficult to exist in a world that you don't understand. So as you cultivate more and more wisdom through learning, reflecting, independently verifying the teachings and practicing them, you get more and more clear vision where you can see and understand the natural laws of existence. And when things happen in the world, you understand exactly why they're happening based on these natural laws. Where in the past, we might have gotten angry or hostile or upset or bitter based on the way things happening and the mind's craving for things to happen a different way than what they're actually happening. The mind can experience this hostility and anger. But when things are happening, and you might disagree with the way things are happening, but when you have vision, you understand why they are happening. And this is part of why the mind can become very peaceful and joyful because you understand that it's not possible for the world to function the way that you want it to function. It's going to function based on the natural laws of existence. And the more you understand those, you develop this vision and this clarity to be able to understand. And now the mind can be at ease because you can see the world is functioning exactly through these natural laws of existence. And there's nothing you can do to control what other beings are choosing to do or not do. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we'll go to chapter 13. 
Yes, let's go to Tonka and read chapter 13, please. Thank you, ma'am. One who has trust and confidence. Monks, in three cases, one may be understood to have dedication and confidence. But three, when one aspires to see those of virtuous behavior practicing moral conduct, when one aspires to hear the good, wholesome teachings, and when one resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. In these three cases, one may be understood to have trust and confidence. One who aspires to see the virtuous ones, who wishes to hear the good, wholesome teachings, who has removed the stain of selfishness, is called a person endowed with dedication. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here again, the Buddha is helping you to see various qualities to practice as part of your practice. And probably the easiest place to see it is down here, although he talks about it up there as well, is he talks about one who aspires to see the virtuous ones. The virtuous ones are the ones who's practicing the teachings very closely, that have this wisdom, the moral conduct, and the mental discipline as part of the Eightfold Path. Someone who's practicing that very closely, essentially what he's saying is, if you aspire to be around wholesome individuals who are practicing these teachings very well, and you have this kind of aspiration to hear the good, wholesome teachings that leads to that virtuous practice, that good, wholesome practice, and you've removed the stain of selfishness, meaning you're freely generous, you're willing to give and share. He's saying this is a person who is endowed with dedication, meaning you're dedicated to learning and practicing in order to get to enlightenment. Whereas if you were the opposite of this, if you weren't really caring who you were around and you know what people do and how whether they were wholesome or not, you just kind of allowed harshness and aggressiveness and bitterness to be around you and you were like that as well. And you could care less about learning any kind of teachings related to uh, the Buddhist teachings and you were selfish and stingy and stayed at home, you know, just being stingy and selfish, just wanting things for yourself, you wouldn't be dedicated to uh, actually getting to enlightenment because you're doing just the opposite of what it takes to actually get to enlightenment. So here he's sharing to be dedicated. You would aspire to be around people who are practicing the teachings well, that you'd be interested in attending classes and reading books and getting support from a teacher to help learn these good, wholesome teachings. And you would be practicing generosity regularly to train the mind to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment, train the mind to give and share, which this whole book is about generosity. And in that situation, then he's saying, okay, this person is dedicated to getting to enlightenment because they're kind of having these baseline minimums in order to actually learn and progress and walk forward towards enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Doesn't appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we're on chapter 14. Practicing the way proper to the household practitioner. Householder, a noble disciple who possesses four qualities is practicing the way proper to the household practitioner, a way that brings the attainment of fame and leads to heaven. What for? 
Here, householder, a noble disciple, serves the community of monks with robes. He serves the community of monks with alms food. He serves the community of monks with lodging. He serves the community of monks with medicines and provisions for the sick. Householder, a noble disciple who possesses these four qualities is practicing the way proper to the household practitioner, a way that brings the attainment of fame and leads to heaven. When the wise practice the way proper for the household practitioner, they serve the virtuous monks of upright conduct with robes, alms food, lodging, and medicines. For them, both by day and night, merit always increases. Having done excellent deeds, they pass on to the heavenly realm. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is giving a guidance for household practitioners of how to ensure these teachings continue in their community. Because in order to have teachings available in a community, there would need to be individuals who are dedicated to learning and practicing those. And by supporting those as a household practitioner, you're supporting individuals in your community to be able to deeply get into their teachings, being able to deeply develop their practice, be able to create resources to help others to get to enlightenment. So a population of people who are providing offerings to ordained practitioners or teachers, people who are dedicated to sharing the teachings, not only is it helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but it's also helping to create more and more practitioners where people are actually practicing the teachings in order to get closer and closer to enlightenment. This community can then become more and more peaceful because more and more people are eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. They're practicing wisdom, moral conduct, mental discipline, and you can see more and more and more people that are practicing that way. And then it actually makes it even easier for people to learn and practice because if you're a lone practitioner, which a lot of you guys may be in your community, you can learn and you can develop and you can get to enlightenment within your community but it would be a lot more straightforward if there were lots of people around you that were learning and practicing. Like if you came here to Thailand, to Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I live, there's lots of people that are practicing these teachings really, really well. So you see when you go out into the community, people practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. You see generosity being practiced on a regular basis. You see the five precepts being practiced. And of course, you see those things not being practiced in some cases too. But depending on where you go and where you're you know, choosing to go throughout your day and what kind of activities you have, you'll see a lot of people that are practicing these teachings. And this will give you kind of an example or a role model. This will give you influences where you'll be able to observe people practicing the teachings very, very well. And this will allow you to bring them into your life uh, more easily. So here the Buddha is saying the wise practice the proper way for household practitioners, which is providing offerings to people so that they can essentially continue to get deeper and deeper into their practice and then be able to offer those teachings back to you as a student and the rest of the community. It's important to see that whenever the Buddha talks about making offerings to teachers and ordained practitioners, he talks about virtuous monks of upright conduct because you know there's thousands and thousands and thousands of monks, probably millions at this point around the, the world and not everybody is practicing the same way. So if you understand more and more what the teachings are and how they need to be practiced and 
what it looks like for someone to be virtuous and to be practicing good, wholesome moral conduct and to be structuring their life in such a way that they're sharing the teachings with others, then the Buddha is saying support those people because those people are doing the work essentially. But if you've got people over here that are not really attentive to their practice, maybe they're complacent, maybe they're uh, into gambling, they're into uh, using substances that cause heedlessness or doing other things that aren't really proper conduct for someone who's deeply sharing these teachings with others and who is aspiring to deepen their own practice. If you provide them support, then you're supporting the gambling, the drugs, the unwholesome activities. So supporting that isn't going to support the community and allow the community to continue to grow and develop with these teachings coming into the community more and more vibrantly. But if you're practicing generosity towards virtuous practitioners of upright conduct who are sharing these teachings well as either ordained practitioners or otherwise, this is going to help you to learn the teachings more because those people are going to get deeper and deeper into their practice and they're going to be able to help a lot more people. And this is where the Buddha says, you know, having done this, that you're accumulating this merit. This merit is a practice of generosity towards the continuation of the Buddhist teachings, where you'll practice generosity in daily life towards other people as well. And that's just pure generosity. But then when there's generosity directed towards the continued sharing of the Buddhist teachings, this is called merit. And by doing offerings towards people who are sharing the teachings, then you're cultivating merit. And you might offer offerings to individuals who are sharing the teachings or maybe temples or different events like a retreat or something like this. This is all for the continuation of the Buddhist teachings and helping others to gain access to these teachings. And he says, having done this as a household practitioner, essentially, this is conducive to moving into the heavenly realm. Now, remember, the goal is to get to enlightenment and not experience any rebirth whatsoever. But if you are generous in this life and you fall short of enlightenment for any reason, what the Buddha shares in this teaching and others, that this is conducive to rebirth in the heavenly realm. The goal isn't to get to the heavenly realm because once you're in the heavenly realm, you still need to do the work in order to get to enlightenment. And the conditions are such that it's not as conducive necessarily as the human realm in order to get to enlightenment. Because in the human realm, we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So we kind of have this built-in motivation to get away from the anger and the sadness and the frustration, the guilt, the shame, the fear, and all these other discontent feelings. So here in the human realm, we tend to have more motivation, an opportunity for more enthusiasm and initiative to spring up to motivate us towards the attainment of enlightenment. Where in the heavenly realm, these beings are only experiencing pleasant feelings. So they don't experience anger and frustration and guilt and shame and fear and things like this in the heavenly realm. So they tend to be complacent and they're oftentimes reborn back into other realms where they then need to continue their journey in order to get to enlightenment. So while it may be interesting for some to think about, ah, rebirth into the heavenly realm, wouldn't that be so wonderful? But it's not a permanent existence. You still need to do work to get to enlightenment and there's less motivation. It's possible to get to enlightenment in the heavenly realm, but it's not guaranteed. And oftentimes those beings are reborn into other realms. The Buddha talks about this in other teachings where he talks about it being very rare 
for a heavenly being to essentially get to enlightenment. And it's very rare for beings to be reborn into the heavenly realm. It's a rare occurrence. And that it's more likely that heavenly beings are going to be reborn into other realms. So while he talks about this and he's explaining the natural laws that yes, practicing generosity to develop merit will be conducive to leading to the heavenly realm, but your goal should be to get to enlightenment in this life so that there's no further existence in the cycle of rebirth after this existence. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. Would it be wise for us as practitioners who, I think for most of us, um, are practicing kind of in day-to-day -day life rather alone, would it be wise for us to seek out a temple, community practitioners somewhere to have that interaction? It can be helpful, but you just need to observe the teachings in that particular environment. Sometimes people might have the mindset that, okay, if it's a Buddhist temple, they must be practicing the same teachings that you know, you're learning and that you're practicing. So if you go into a temple environment, realize that it's not necessarily um, going to be an environment where they're practicing based on the words of the Buddha. So you might see rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. You might see them talking about meditation and ways or, or teaching meditation in ways that the Buddha didn't actually teach. Uh, you might see uh, certain practitioners not understanding things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth. So it can be helpful for you to go into these environments, but just realize that uh, you'll need to observe what's going on in that environment and how they're practicing. If you live close to a Thai Theravada Buddhist temple, that would be where I would suggest to start because they're more likely to be practicing something close to what you're learning. But even in these temples, uh, they're not oftentimes teaching uh, and they're uh, sometimes doing the rites, ritual, ceremonies, and worship. I've visited over 200 temples in my life and I've only ever been to one that was practicing based on the words of the Buddha. That's less than 1% of all the temples that I've ever visited. That's in America and here in Thailand as well. So it doesn't mean that, you know, you need to run away from that temple or, you know, push it away, but just realize that when you go into these environments that people may not be practicing the same things that you're practicing. They may not be learning the same things that you're learning. And that can actually open up possibilities for you because you might be able to bring some of these books that are the words of the Buddha and kind of strengthen that community and help those people in that environment if they're open to it. So it can be helpful uh, to be part of that, but you'll have to decide for yourself if you know that works into your lifestyle and there's a temple around you that perhaps is practicing or learning in the way that it is that you know that are based on the words of the Buddha. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Uh, does not appear that we have any other questions at this time. Okay, so we'll go to chapter 15. Yes, let's go to Tom to read chapter 15. Thank you, ma'am. Mutual support between monks, brahmins, and householders. Monks, brahmins, and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with requisites of robes, arms, food, lodgings, and medicines in time of sickness. And you monks are very helpful to brahmins and householders as you teach them the teachings that are good in the beginning, in the middle, 
and the end with the correct meaning and wording and you proclaim the spiritual life in its full, full fulfillment and complete purity thus monks this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of discontentedness all right thank you tonka so here just a short little paragraph but there's really a lot that the buddha is explaining and talking about here the overall theme, of course, is this mutual support between ordained practitioners who are teachers and these Brahmin and, and household practitioners. Household practitioners are people who are learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings from within the home environment. Brahmin are people that live during the lifetime of the Buddha, and there's still some of these around today, which are essentially Hindu priests that were doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And people had been taught that you needed to go to the Brahmin in order to pray, and they would pray on the, your behalf. You would essentially pay them money. They would go off and pray, and your life was supposed to get better based on the work that they did. And the Buddha knew that this wasn't the truth, but it was part of the culture that he was living in, and he was educating people to understand that this isn't the way that life works, that if you are interested in producing a better life and having a better mind, that you need to do the work. So Brahmin, even though they were Hindu priests, they had some teachings that were actually, had some similarities to the Buddhist teachings in some ways, but in more cases than not, the Brahmin were actually learning from the Buddha in order to understand his teachings. And what he's saying is, okay, you ordained practitioners, you teachers who are living based on donations, these students are of mutual support. You guys are mutually supporting each other. Essentially, the students are providing support to the teachers in order to sustain their lifestyle and be able to get deeply into the teachings and be able to share the teachings and use the resources that are being shared from the Brahmin and the householders to be able to then provide for the basic necessities that you need in order to sustain your life. And nowadays we do things like having Zoom and having computers and microphones and lights and books and podcasts and YouTube channels and all these different things that we use in order to help share the teachings. So the donations of time, effort, energy, and resources from the students are helping a teacher to be able to sustain their life and provide the teachings back to the community. And they should be living just a very basic life. You shouldn't see a teacher of these teachings, you know, living in a mansion, having five, ten different cars, you know, very expensive watches and jewelry. If they're using the donations to purchase those things, their mind is still craving this material wealth and these material possessions. Probably not somebody that would be best to learn with, someone who's, you know, expecting payment for the teachings that they're providing. So by students freely being generous to people who are sharing these teachings, they can get deeper into their practice and then share the teachings with the students. That's the mutual support that for the gamma to help in all situations with the students helping the teachers in order to sustain their life and provide resources to be able to share these teachings, then the teachers should be sharing the teachings in a dedicated and determined way with their students. That's the mutual support. And the Buddha talks about that one who's teaching, they should be teaching the teachings that are good in the middle, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. This is how we taught 
people to share the teachings that essentially you shouldn't start off as a teacher teaching in a two-hour class really really strongly and then kind of fade towards the end or start out kind of you know meager or kind of lackluster and then kind of build towards the end instead the beginning the middle and the end should be you know very clear very concise very direct with teachings that have the correct meaning in wording ensuring that we're using the proper words whereas if we're not attentive as teachers to the words and the phrases that we're using then the teachings aren't as penetrating for the students and they can't see clearly about how it is to learn these teachings and practice them so a teacher should be a role model they should be an example for their students to be able to see how to practice these teachings with something like right speech and ensuring that you're paying attention to the meaning and the phrasing and the wording that you're using as a teacher to share the teachings with the students this helps the students to learn how to practice and it makes the teachings more beneficial because they're more penetrating language to be able to enter into the mind and then be able to practice those teachings. The Buddha is talking about the teachings as proclaiming the spiritual life and fulfilling complete purity. This is because you're purifying the mind as you're learning his teachings and you're training, you're developing this life practice or this spiritual life and you're developing a more and more pure mind because you're training the mind to eliminate unwholesome qualities and to arise the wholesome qualities in the mind. And then through providing this mutual support where students are willing to provide support to teachers and teachers are willing to provide support by giving teachings to the students, then through this mutual support, there's this crossing of the flood. The flood is like life, you know, having the world be in disrepair, you know, all the different challenges that are experienced in the world, it's like there's a flood. And now through learning and practicing these teachings, you can cross the flood, you can get to the other side and make a complete end to discontentedness. Sometimes people don't understand that the path to enlightenment leads to the complete end of discontentedness. The mind will never experience conditioned feelings any longer like things like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest little displeasure is eliminated from the enlightened mind. So if somebody's still experiencing those types of feelings, then the mind's not yet enlightened. So the Buddha is explaining there's a complete end to discontentedness it's not just minimizing discontentedness it's not just you know throttling it back a little bit because why would anybody go to this extensive amount of work on the path to enlightenment just to kind of minimize discontentedness instead it's not about learning how to suffer and suffering well and therefore if you learn how to suffer you suffer less instead what the path to enlightenment is about is completely ending suffering or discontentedness, where the mind will never be discontent ever again, where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So an enlightened being would understand these type of things, that you're working towards the complete end of discontentedness. And having done so, you will be eliminating the cycle of rebirth as well. And this system that the Buddha put in place where household practitioners need the teachings from teachers 
but teachers also need the support from the household practitioners, from the students. They can't sustain their life unless they have clothes and, and food and shelter and medical care and things like this. So there's this mutual support that's needed from both directions. And this ensures that there's a connection between these two groups of people. Because if ordained practitioners or teachers just got into the teachings and they just deeply trained the mind and got to this peacefulness and this calmness and this serenity, this contentedness with joy, there's a tendency to maybe just sit back and, you know, enjoy it and just, you know, not do anything other than just go through life. And if you're able to support yourself through your own career as a teacher or by cultivating your own food and clothing and things like this, then what would be the purpose to share the teachings with someone else? So an enlightened being should have loving kindness and compassion. And where they're interested to share the teachings, they would be willing to share the teachings. But the Buddha put this extra motivation in place to ensure that there is motivation to share the teachings with students because a teacher's life is dependent to get those basic requirements, those basic necessities of life are needed in order to sustain one's life. And the students need the teachings in order to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of their life. So we built in this mutual support to ensure there was interaction between these two groups of people and that the monks wouldn't just go off into the forest and just get to enlightenment and just, you know, enjoy it for the rest of their life without any interaction with anyone else. So this ensures that there is that interaction through the mutual support that is provided between students to teachers and teachers to the students. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time. Okay, so now we're on chapter 16. Yes, four worthy deeds to be undertaken with wealth. Householder, with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained, noble disciple undertakes four worthy deeds. What for? One, here, householder, with wealth acquired by energetic striving, masked by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained, the noble disciple makes himself content and pleased and properly maintains himself in contentedness. He makes his parents content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. He makes his wife and children, his slaves, workers, and servants content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. He makes his friends and companions content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. This is the first case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly utilized and used for a worthy cause. Again, with wealth acquired, the noble disciple makes provisions against the losses that might arise from fire, floods, kings, thieves, or displeasing pairs. He makes himself secure against them. This is the second case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed for use for a worthy cause. Three, again, with wealth acquired, the noble disciple makes the five offerings to relatives, guests, ancestors, the kings, and the deities. This is the third case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for a worthy cause. Four, again, with wealth acquired, 
the noble disciple establishes an uplifting offering alms, a donation, an offering that is heavenly, resulting in contentedness, conducive to heaven. To those ascetics and Brahmins who refrain from intoxication and heedlessness, who are settled in patience and gentleness, who tame the mind, calm the mind, and train the mind for Nibbana, for enlightenment. This is the fourth case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for a worthy cause. These householders are the four worthy deeds that the noble disciple undertakes with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. But when anyone exhausts wealth on these four worthy deeds, that wealth is said to have gone to good use, to have been properly used, to have been utilized for a worthy cause. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this actually goes to a question that Tonka was asking last week about kind of finding this middle way in terms of practicing generosity. And the Buddha here is kind of helping you to see how to get to that middle way. That first of all, it's important to have a right livelihood to acquire any kind of wealth. And the Buddha talks about right livelihood in other parts of his teachings, ensuring that you're not causing harm through your livelihood and that this would be wealth that is acquired through energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained, right? So this is using right livelihood in order to acquire certain income. So if you're practicing right livelihood, not practicing one of those five wrong trades to be plied, which is trading in weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants and trading in poisons. This is going to cause harm in the world. And then there's additional teachings on right livelihood that deal with you finding essentially your true interest and motivation behind a certain livelihood where it doesn't even feel like work to you, that you're just very enthusiastic about providing this particular service to the community. It's almost an extension of your actual practice. That's the energetic striving that you do, that you understand that this work that you do, it almost doesn't even feel like work, that you enjoy the livelihood that you've developed for yourself so well. So once you have this wealth that's righteously gained and righteously acquired, then the Buddha says, okay, well, what's the best ways to kind of use this? Because in other parts of his teachings, he talks about ways that you can actually diminish and degrade your wealth and kind of lose your wealth. Well, here he's talking about how to use your wealth to good use. And the first thing that he says is he says, yeah, you need to essentially take care of yourself. Because if you don't have the food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care that you need, how could you ever provide any benefit to anybody else and actually helping other people in the world if that's what you aspire to do if you're not taking care of yourself? It would be very difficult to ever get to peacefulness and joy if you're struggling to even have food to eat each day or have clothing or shelter, other things like this. So this helps you to get to contentedness by ensuring that you properly maintain your own basic needs in order to sustain your life. Then with those taking care of your own basic needs, he says, okay, you know, let's take care of our parents because of the reasons that we talked about previously is that our parents are original caregivers. They provided us a lot of care early on. So if our parents are struggling and lacking the ability to sustain their life, then we should ensure that they're taken care of. And then he talks about 
your life partner, your children, essentially your employees here, ensuring that they're taken care of. Because if these people around you, the people that are closest to you, you yourself, your parents, your life partner, any children that you might have or your employees, if these people aren't well taken care of, you're not gonna be able to continue to make an income. So he says, okay, take care of these individuals. And that's the first case of wealth going to good use. And then he says, okay, then the next group of people to consider or the next way to kind of use your, your wealth is to ensure that you protect it. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, you know, there weren't the, the systems that we have today, like the banking systems, the insurance, things like this. Essentially, you know, people probably just gathered up their money and kept it in a pot in their house or, you know, buried it in their yard or something like this. And essentially what the Buddha is saying is make sure your wealth is protected from fire, floods, kings, which is essentially the government, from thieves or displeasing heirs. So you might choose to put your money in a bank or two or three. You know, if you're getting pretty wealthy, you might need to spread that out amongst multiple banks. You would like to be sure that you pay your fair share of taxes so the government isn't coming after you with penalties and fees and things like this. This also helps by having your money distributed in various locations. It protects against thieves. And then by having a very clear will, for example, would be displeasing heirs. Whereas if people didn't necessarily know what you were leaving behind, they could potentially be displeased once you die. So having a very clear will and letting sure, making sure that people understand your will before you die, this can ensure that people aren't discontent once you die and they're fighting and squabbling over your possessions because everybody knew before you ever died of what you were leaving where and how to access that. And you've sorted out all of that so there's not a bunch of conflict after you die. So that's the next thing that the Buddha says, be sure that you essentially protect any wealth that you've acquired. The third thing that he talks about is making offerings to relatives, to guests. This is like people who are coming to your home that are visiting you, that you know provide water and drinks and food and things like this, ensuring that they are well taken care of when they come to visit you. And same thing like ancestors, people who are elders in your community and things like this. The government or you know the king making sure that they're satisfied with whatever you pay in terms of taxes. This one that he talks about here in terms of deities, I haven't seen him talk about what to do with that. And remember, he didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So I'm not 100% sure what he's referring to here. So if anybody ever sees anything about that, feel free to bring it to my attention. But for all intents and purposes, I think that that one is not something that we're going to necessarily practice because, you know, how are you going to give offerings and things like this to deities when there's no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship as part of this practice? So I'm not sure if this is just an error in translation or maybe a, a modification that's happened as the teachings have come down over the years, but I haven't seen anything where the Buddha talks about making offerings to any kind of deities. And then the fourth one that he talks about is when all these things are essentially satisfied, be sure that you're kind of setting aside some offerings for these aesthetics and Brahmin, people who are sharing the teachings to help create a, a better, more uplifting community by making offerings 
to teachers who are sharing these teachings, then you continue to learn and other people in your community are able to continue to learn these teachings. And then once again, when he's talking about making offerings to teachers, he really qualifies this. He says, you know, aesthetics who are refraining from intoxication and heedlessness. So they're practicing that fifth precept that they're settled in patience and gentleness, right? Observing that who's tamed the mind, right? You should see this calmness of the mind and they're training towards the attainment of enlightenment. Because if you're supporting those kind of teachers who are either are enlightened or close to enlightenment, then that's going to be very helpful that that person can then ultimately make their way to enlightenment or if they are enlightened, then they have the resources they need to sustain their life and share the teachings into the world to help others. So it's interesting here that you see that the Buddha came from a very rich family. He was a member of a royal family. He was a prince destined to become a king. He had lots and lots of money, but he stepped down from that and he lived his life based on donations and people offering him clothing and food and shelter and medical care and things like this. So he didn't use this spiritual life in order to acquire a whole bunch of wealth because he already had that in the past. He didn't need that. He already knew what that was like to experience that. So instead, he's just needing enough in order to sustain his life and ensure that he has the basic necessities that he needs. And he says, if we've done these four things, then this is our wealth going to good use. And this would be four worthy deeds that we could practice in order to ensure that any kind of income that we acquire goes towards these beneficial purposes. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, the only question that I had was whether or not um, when this was spoken about with the making offerings to deities, if maybe that was a misunderstanding of teachings, but I think you, you touched on that, sir. Yeah, I think that could be the case because, you know, I can't imagine the Buddha teaching to make offerings to deities, um, but, you know, I haven't seen every single discourse in the Pali Canon because it's so exhaustive. So if anybody ever sees something like that, it'd be interesting to see it. Yes, thank you, sir. And then I see Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to her question, please. Thank you, Miranda. I was wondering about um, uh, here, Buddha is talking about slaves and uh, we talked how uh, business uh, with human beings is not part of right livelihood and uh, like seems to be a little bit of contradiction. Slaves, servants, and we don't want to have a business using uh, human beings or even animals. Yeah, so I imagine what was going on is during that lifetime before the Buddha taught that there were people that had slaves and Perhaps the way that we think of slaves and kind of the aggression, hostility, maybe that didn't quite exist during that lifetime, the way that we see like in North America when there was slavery there, that was very unfortunate what happened to the people that are slaves. And the way we think about slaves that exist today, that might not have been the same way that they treated what is being translated as slaves here. They might not have treated these same people in the same way. But if they did, the Buddha is going to teach based on what exists even though he's teaching in other parts of his teachings that we shouldn't have businesses and human beings and yes that would be ideal there are going to be people during his lifetime that do have slaves so he's going to teach okay take care of these people 
right? So if people were abusing their slaves, for example, what he's teaching here is take care of them, make sure they're well cared for. Because a Buddha is not going to try to control people. They're not going to try to dictate or push people to do one thing or the other. So in one's part of his teachings where he's saying, okay, be sure that you're not having businesses and living beings. But then here in another teaching, all right, well, if you have these beings that you're that are dependent on you and that are essentially your employees, be sure to take care of them and treat them well. That's what he's saying here. And then over time, what I suspect that we've seen over the course of humanity is less and less and less slaves in the world. But if somebody's going to do this kind of thing and they currently have slaves, it would be wise to no longer have that. But if somebody is you know, kind of responsible for taking care of these beings, the Buddha is saying, Take care of them well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's go to the next one, which is chapter 17. Yes, sir. Let's go to Tonka to read chapter 17, please. Thank you, Miranda. Without being used properly goes to utilization, not to waste. But great king, when a wholesome man gains abandoned wealth, he makes himself peaceful and pleased, and he makes his mother and father peaceful and pleased, and his wife and children, and his slaves, workers and servants, and his friends and colleagues, and he establishes an offering to ascetics and brahmins, one leading upwards of of heavenly fruit, resulting in peacefulness conducive to heaven. Because his wealth is being used properly, kings do not take it away, thieves do not take it away, fire does not burn it, water does not carry it away, and displeased uh, hearers do not take it. Such being the case, great king, that wealth being used properly goes to utilization, not to waste. Suppose great king, not far from a village or a town, there was a lotus pond with clear, cool, sweet, clean water with good crossings, delightful, and people would take that water and drink it and bath in it and use it for their purposes. In such a case, great king, that water being used properly would go to utilization, not to waste. So too, great king, when a wholesome man gains abandoned wealth, he makes himself peaceful and pleased, and he makes his mother and father peaceful and pleased, and his wife and children and his slaves, workers and servants, and his friends and colleagues, and he establishes an offering for ascetics and Brahmins, one leading upwards of heavenly fruit resulting in peacefulness conducive to heaven. Because his wealth is being used properly, kings do not take it away, thieves do not take it away, fire does not burn it, water does, does not carry it away, and displeased hearers do not take it. Such being the case, great king, that wealth being used properly goes to utilization, not to waste. All right. Thank you, Tonka. So here, it's essentially very similar to the discourse that we just saw. Notice here that he doesn't mention deities at all. So that's why that previous 
part could potentially just be an error in translation or something that got modified along the way over 2,500 years. Here, he's focusing us on understanding that supporting these things that he's describing, your own contentedness, your life partner, your children, your employees, your mother, your father, friends, colleagues, aesthetics, Brahmin, things like this, that having done that, then he's essentially saying the kings or the government's not going to come and take it away. Whereas if we're doing harmful things with our money, then the government has a tendency to come in and penalize us, right? And charge us fees and we have court fees and then we have penalties and when we're doing harmful things in the world. So the same thing existed during his lifetime, but it was with kings. Um, and he's saying the same thing with thieves and fire and water that and displeasing heirs, that these things don't take away your wealth because you're using your wealth for good purposes. You're essentially doing uh, wholesome things with your wealth and building up your gamma or the results of your decisions. And by making good, wise choices about how you use your wealth, then these individuals aren't going to try to come and take it or it won't be subjected to fire and water and things like this. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? does not appear there are any questions this time, sir. Okay, we'll go to chapter 18. Or things leading to welfare and peacefulness in future lives. There are, by God, sorry, students, these four other things that lead to a householder's welfare and peacefulness in future lives. What for? One, accomplishment and confidence. Two, accomplishment and virtuous behavior. Three, accomplishment and generosity. And four, accomplishment and wisdom. And what is accomplishment and confidence? Here, a householder is endowed with confidence. He places confidence in the enlightenment of the Tathagata thus. The perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, fortunate one, the perfectly enlightened one. This is called accomplishment and confidence. And what is accomplishment and virtuous behavior, moral conduct? Here, a householder abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. This is called accomplishment and virtuous behavior. And what is accomplishment and generosity? Here, a householder resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting vote, one devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This is called accomplishment and generosity. And what is accomplishment and wisdom? Here, a householder is wise. He possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrated, and leads to complete destruction of discontentedness. This is called accomplishment and wisdom. These are the four other things that lead to the welfare and peacefulness of a householder in future lives. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So these are four things that the Buddha is saying that leads to peacefulness in future lives. But this is also the things that leads to peacefulness in this life as well. He talks about that in different parts of his teachings. But here, this particular discourse just happens to be focused on future lives. But these things also are conducive to peacefulness in this life as well. 
So the first one is confidence, having confidence in the Buddha, that he was actually a Buddha. Because why would anybody spend any amount of time whatsoever learning and practicing his teachings if you didn't have confidence that he was actually enlightened? When you first start on this path, you might not have confidence, you might have doubt, and you can actually harness this and direct it towards healthy doubt, where it motivates you in you become inquisitive to actually learn to investigate and examine his teachings. So if you have doubt whether he was actually enlightened or not, then that's fine, but just direct it towards investigation and examination of his teachings and becoming inquisitive. And as you learn and implement these teachings more and more and you see the impact to the condition of the mind and condition of your life, you'll have no doubt that he was actually a Buddha because 2,500 years ago he shared these teachings and here we are 2,500 years later learning and practicing and able to get to enlightenment based on his teachings because that's one of the primary criteria of being a Buddha is that you leave the teachings in a condition such that others after your death can learn those teachings and actually get to enlightenment. So having confidence in the Buddha is going to help you then eliminate doubt so that that will help you ultimately to get to the first stage of enlightenment where you have no doubt that these teachings are leading to the improvement to the condition of the mind and the condition of the life. And having experienced that, you'll see that then you'll have even more motivation to continue to pursue further on this path. The next one is accomplishment in virtuous behavior or moral conduct. Here the Buddha talks about eliminating destruction of life, eliminating taking what is not given, which is essentially stealing, sexual misconduct, false speech, liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. This is the five precepts. And in the five precepts, he provides much more illuminating language than just what he's got here. This is just him pointing to the five precepts and saying, okay, that's virtuous behavior or moral conduct. And he expands upon that in the full path with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So here he's saying to be accomplished in virtuous behavior to practice the five precepts as guidance to help you reduce the harm that you're causing in the world. These aren't rules or commandments or thou shalt do this, but instead, if you were doing these things, if you were killing, if you were stealing, if you had sexual misconduct, if you were lying and you were taking substances that cause heedlessness, you would find it very difficult to create a peaceful life, this life or any future life, because your mind is causing this harm to other beings and causing harm to this being who you are now. So by you cleaning up your moral conduct through significantly reducing the unwholesome decisions and unwise decisions that you're making, you'll be able to reduce the unwholesome results because you're making wise and wiser decisions to practice the five precepts. And you can learn that in volume one, chapter seven. I go in detail using the words of the Buddha of what the five precepts are so that you can then practice them closely and realize the benefits of having improved moral conduct. Then the third thing is he talking about generosity for the same reasons that we've been talking about by practicing generosity you're eliminating craving desire attachment and it's helping you to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment by eliminating craving desire attachment you're working on eliminating that craving that then is going to produce discontentedness in the mind so if you're willing to give and share more than is strictly required, then the mind isn't going to be selfish and it's not going to be just looking to 
pursue your own selfish desires. Instead, you have this joy in giving and sharing and contributing to the world in ways that you're not required to do. You're going above and beyond. You're providing the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required of your time, effort, energy, and resources. And this is where you can cultivate really healthy relationships through practicing generosity with the people around you. And then the last one that leads to peacefulness in this life and in future lives is being sure to cultivate wisdom. And I've talked in many different classes about how to do that, where you're learning the teachings, you're not believing them, you're reflecting on the teachings to independently verify that they're true, and then you're practicing the teachings in order to transform the mind. This is what leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness, the complete elimination of discontentedness. You're not learning how to suffer well or how to suffer less. You're learning how to completely destroy discontentedness and eliminate it 100% from the mind. And the way that you would accomplish that is by cultivating wisdom, not by belief. This connects back to understanding dependent origination. If you look in volume 5, chapter 14, you'll see that there the Buddha shares the teachings on dependent origination and explaining to you exactly why you are experiencing discontentedness and the cycle of rebirth. The Four Noble Truths is getting to the heart of the matter in four simple statements, but the highest ultimate truth is dependent origination, where there's 12 interlinking connections helping you to see what is truly leading to your discontentedness. And the number one thing is this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. We know that craving, desire, attachment is what causes discontentedness. And that also motivates anger and hostility and aggression and ill will. But the whole reason why these two things of craving and anger exist is because of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. And therefore, that's the reason why craving continues and anger continues. So the only way to transform and unravel all of this is to get to wisdom. That's the exact opposite of this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So by transforming the ignorance towards wisdom, by not believing the teachings, but learning independently verifying them and practicing them, then you can get to this wisdom. And the more wisdom you have about these natural laws, you will naturally do what is wise because you're not interested in causing harm to yourself or to other beings. And as you cause harm to other beings, you cause harm to yourself. So this wisdom accumulates and you get to the point where you're accomplished in wisdom, where it leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness, completely having eliminated 100%. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Um, yes, sir. It is understood that happiness is also discontentedness. Happiness that's based on conditioned things. Um, would this mean that an enlightened mind would not experience happiness either? It depends how you would like to describe it. I describe happiness as a conditioned feeling. And then I describe enlightenment as this unconditioned joy, this joyfulness, where it's just always there. It's a mental state of joy, where happiness is a feeling that arises, it changes, and it fades away. The joy in the enlightened mental state, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. It's just always there. It's like a persistent. It's 
filled up in the mind. It doesn't change. The mind can easily access a smile all day long. You're joyful. There's never a time where an enlightened being is in a bad mood. So I describe the unenlightened mind as experiencing these conditioned feelings of happiness and the enlightened mind as experiencing this unconditioned joy or joyfulness or this mental quality of joy. And I think that helps us to understand it the best. But if you would like to think of that as conditioned happiness and unconditioned happiness, you can think of it that way, but it might become confusing for you or that might be more clear for you. I don't know. So the mind that is enlightened is beyond pleasure and pain. It's no longer experiencing these conditioned temporary feelings where happiness arises, it changes and it fades away, ultimately leaving the mind displeased and in dissatisfaction. Instead, once you train the mind to no longer do that, then the mind is just going to be permanently joyful and it's always going to be experiencing this joy. There's nothing that's going to shake up the mind. And that's what an enlightened being is experiencing. And I call them two different things because I think it helps to clarify and delineate that there's this conditioned happiness that all beings have experienced where it arises, changes, and fades away based on some condition, like a new pair of shoes or a new job, a new friend, more money. There's conditioned happiness. But then this unconditioned joy or just this joy that I describe that's a mental state, it's just always there. If you have a lot of money in your bank, the mind's joyful, but it's not joyful because of a lot of money. So therefore, when the money goes down in your bank account and you don't have much money, the mind is actually still joyful, even though there's less money in the bank. The mind understands in the enlightened mental state that this is just impermanence. Your bank balance is going to go up and it's going to go down. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. This is normal. This is impermanence. But if we attach our feelings to our bank account, then when it goes up, there's going to be happiness. When it comes down, it's going to be sad. That's what an unenlightened being experiences. But an enlightened being doesn't experience that. It's just always joyful, regardless of what's happening in the world. If you talk to certain people, if you do certain things, if you get a new pair of shoes, if you get a new car, the mind is just joyful when those things are happening, but not because those things are happening. And then when you don't have those things or those things are gone, your mind still maintains its joy in the enlightened mental state. This is what you might call unconditioned joy or unconditioned happiness because there's no condition that's creating it. So it it's always present. Yes, I understand. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time, too. Okay, so now we go to chapter 19. Yes, let's go to Tonka, please, to read chapter 19. Thank you, Miranda. Offering for the heavenly beings. The fortunate one gave thanks thus to Sanitha and Vasakara, the chief ministers of Magadha, after he had finished eating his meal in these verses. In whatever realm the wise man makes his home, he should feed the virtuous leaders of the holy life. Whatever heavenly beings there are who report these offerings, they will pay him respect and honor for this. They tremble for him as a mother for her son, and he for whom heavenly beings tremble ever happy is. Okay, so thank you, Tonka. This is the Buddha 
having received an offering from some people, he would have received food in this case. And after he ate his meal, he basically gave this thanks. He showed his appreciation for this offering of food. This is very important as ordained practitioners and teachers that as household practitioners are making offerings to us, that we show our gratitude and we show our appreciation, we show our respect for the offerings that are being made. It's important to understand the work and the effort that household practitioners go through in order to acquire whatever time, effort, energy, or resources they're sharing. And as teachers, we should show our gratitude and respect for this and that we appreciate what they're sharing with us. And the Buddha is doing that here as he's you know, sharing these verses essentially delivering some teachings after he's received this offering by giving thanks he's giving some teachings to help and i'm sure that before the food or maybe after the food he might have given some teachings as well or at different times during these individuals uh, life he would have offered teachings to them and because of that you know they're helping to take care of of the buddha and they were able to make offerings to him and his ordained practitioners and the buddha is saying you know, that this is wise to essentially take care of people who are uh, sharing these teachings and leaders in the holy life. And then he talks about essentially that if you're reborn, that this is actually going to help you in any kind of future rebirths as well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, now we're in chapter 20. Without having abandoned selfishness, one is incapable of realizing the fruit of arahantship. Monks, without having abandoned these five things, one is incapable of entering and residing in the first jhana, in the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. One is incapable of realizing the fruit of stream entry, the fruit once returning, the fruit of non-returning, the fruit of arahantship. What five? Selfishness with regard to dwellings, selfishness with regard to families, selfishness with regard to material possessions, selfishness with regard to praise, and selfishness with regard to the teachings. Monks, having abandoned these five things, one is capable of entering and residing the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. One is capable of realizing the fruit of stream entry the fruit of once returning, the fruit of non-returning, the fruit of our hardship, but five. Selfishness with regard to dwellings, selfishness with regard to families, selfishness with regard to material possessions, selfishness with regard to praise, and selfishness with regard to the teachings. Having abandoned these five things, one is capable of realizing the fruit of our hardship. All right, thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is explaining very specific things that you need to eliminate selfishness towards. And these five that he's talking about is selfishness regarding dwellings, families, material possessions, praise, and the teachings. So I'm going to explain what each one of these are. Selfishness with regard to dwellings, this is being willing to share your home because oftentimes the mind has craving towards a home and we don't necessarily want somebody else in our home or even to sleep in our home or to reside in our home so the buddha is saying okay be sure that you eliminate any selfishness related to your home because this is a place where the mind tends to have a lot of craving so being willing for people to 
reside in your home. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, they would invite the aesthetics, the ordained practitioners, the teachers into their home in order to come stay for multiple weeks, sometimes even months. And this is how they receive teachings that if you have a teacher residing in your home with you and seeing and experiencing your daily life and your relationships as people are coming and going throughout your day, they can then provide you guidance of these teachings based on having somebody reside in your home with you. Uh, We don't do that as much these days, but it's definitely something that could be done. It would be really helpful to have a teacher, you know, for a few days or a week or two, stay with you uh, either or maybe even go on vacation with you and your family. This is a way that some people will do it as a way to kind of help the family to reside more peacefully together and kind of learn how to interact very peacefully with each other, very joyfully. So being willing to share your home is essentially what the Buddha is talking about here. And then selfishness regarding families. So you should be willing to give and share amongst all beings, but particularly your family. Sometimes brothers, sisters, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, people like this, you know, siblings have trouble sharing amongst themselves. So here he's saying being sure that you're willing to share with your family. And then being willing to share material possessions. If there's certain things like clothing or, you know, your computer or uh, certain possessions, if you have these prized possessions that you don't want anybody to touch and you've got them tucked away behind a glass uh, cabinet and nobody can touch them ever, this is because the mind's craving to keep them permanently. Where if you're willing to practice of sharing your material possessions, where you're giving and sharing things, this is going to help the mind to let go and not hold on because as long as you have craving to your material possessions, you're not going to be able to experience enlightenment. Being willing to eliminate selfishness of praise, being willing to compliment people about the things that they're doing well, whether they're friends or family, whether they're people that are in your life in any particular way, maybe like employees or things like this. Whereas if you hold back your praise, that's not going to be helpful for you. The mind's craving and holding on. But also if you are praising excessively, that wouldn't be wise either. So you need to find this middle where you're comfortable letting people know, hey, you did a really good job there. That's outstanding job. Thank you so much. Or whatever you end up saying, right? So being willing to to share praise with others. And then the Buddha talks about being willing to share the teachings. Not everybody's going to decide to be a teacher and share these teachings more formally like what you see me doing. But at least if somebody asks you a question, you should be willing to share. So if you're perhaps meditating and you're doing the work to progress closer and closer to enlightenment, maybe people in your life know that you're on this path to enlightenment and they might ask you a question about meditation or right speech or the Four Noble Truths or the Five Precepts or something like this. And the Buddha is essentially saying you should be willing to share with them whatever wisdom that you have related to the teachings. Whereas if you're trying to hide the teachings and not actually share them with other people, this would be selfishness regarding the teachings. I've seen people that are like this, that are like, no, you know, we shouldn't share the teachings. We should try to keep them secret. But what the Buddha is sharing with you here is that if you're selfish regarding any of these five things, you're not going to be able to enter into the first, second, third, or fourth jhanas, which are those preliminary phases the mind experiences before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment, 
which is stream entry. The second stage is once returner. The third stage is non-returner. And the fourth stage where the mind is actually enlightened is called arahantship. So if the mind is stingy and selfish, you're not going to be able to get to arahantship. You're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. Anybody who gets to enlightenment is going to need to have a well-developed practice of generosity where you're regularly giving and sharing on a continuous ongoing basis, being willing to share with others and not being selfish and hold on to the things that the Buddha is explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. Just for clarification, <clears throat> does this mean that in to get to the first or second genre, one would have to have eliminated all selfishness or just these five areas? You're going to need to eliminate all selfishness in order to progress through these phases of the jhanas and get to enlightenment. So there wouldn't be any selfishness in an enlightened being's mind whatsoever. But the way that the Buddha is explaining is that you would need to eliminate selfishness regarding all five of these things, even just to get to the first jhana. But an enlightened being isn't going to have selfishness about anything whatsoever. They're going to be willing to give and share. Like where the Buddha talks about, even if it was your last mouthful, your last bite, you would be willing to share that with somebody else. Yes. Thank you, sir. I understand. I see that Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to her for a question. I just wanted to share something that I'm not seeing more and more nowadays. Like attention seems to be uh, very important to people and people don't always like to share their attention. Like so many times when we try to talk to someone, they are looking at their phone, they don't, you know, pay attention to what you are saying. So I was just thinking that would be really generous to actually give someone full attention when they are talking to you or um, like I just thought I would add that when we are talking about generosity I thought it would be a good thing to do. Yeah, that's very wise. And you know how that feels when you're interacting with somebody who's mm -hmm. so engrossed into something else that it's like, why am I even spending time with this person? You know, they're, they're not really involved in what we're, what we're doing here. And you can see the gamma there that maybe that person doesn't get invited to things or people aren't interested in being around that person. So in terms of your practice, being willing to participate in the events and the situations that you're involved in, that's very wise and it will produce wholesome results for you. Yeah, especially now because we are so uh, overwhelmed with stimulation everywhere, uh, like workplace, family, places, so much going on all the time. <laughs> that attention seems to be like uh, very, uh, very, very important and valuable. Exactly. Uh, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Does not appear that there are any other questions this time, sir. Okay. Well, I would just like to thank all of you guys for joining and thank you guys for reading Tonka and Miranda. If you're watching this live, uh, pleased that you're here. If you're listening to this on the replay through Facebook, YouTube, on our podcast or anywhere else that we distribute this content, thank you for your dedication and determination to learn and practice these teachings. 
In the next week's class on Saturday, we're going to be going through the next 10 chapters, which is going to be chapters 21 through 30. So you're welcome to study those ahead of time. And if you need this book, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and you can download it for free. You can print that if you like, or you can order copies on Amazon. And that way you can actually be learning prior to the class. And then you might even have some additional questions that you might have. On January 28th, which is a Saturday, we're going to be restarting this program from the very beginning. You can actually join the Pali Canon and English Study Group at any point. But if you would like to start from the beginning, just know that that's where we're going to be restarting. And we'll be able to go all the way through all the books again. It takes about a year and a half to go through volumes 2 through 13. And that's what this Pali Canon and English Study Group is all about. Tomorrow in our group learning program, I'm going to be sharing the fifth class of this retreat series, Harmony and Relationships. This class is titled Developing and Maintaining Relationships, Choosing Wholesome Friends, and a Life Partner. This is where I'm going to help you understand how to make wise decisions about who you choose to involve in your life without having judgment towards other beings. It's helpful to cultivate wholesome relationships around you, But if you're doing that with judgment, it would be detrimental to your mind. So I'm going to share with you the wisdom of how to make wise decisions about friends and companions, about having healthy and wholesome relationships, including with a life partner. Because if you decide to have a life partner, this individual is going to be very close to you and going to end up influencing how you do things in the world. So you would like to ensure that you're selecting wholesome friends and a life partner because this is going to help to propel you towards enlightenment, that you have wholesome friends and a life partner if you choose to have one. Whereas if you had unwholesomeness around you, then this is going to be detrimental to your practice. And if you were judging people and choosing who to have in your life and pushing away people who you don't like, this isn't what an enlightened being is going to do either. So I'm going to help you find this middle way of how to cultivate and develop and maintain relationships with friends and a life partner if that's what you choose to have. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to join that class as well. So thank you all for participating in the class. Thank you, Miranda and Tonka, for your generosity and taking your time, effort, and energy to read the chapters. Thank you, anybody who's listening to this, who shares offerings with me to help me to provide the basic necessities that I need to sustain life and to be able to afford the things that I need in order to share these teachings with all of you online and then also the work that I'm doing here and throughout other parts of the world to share the teachings as well. So thank you all for your generous offerings and your practice of generosity. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.